Chapter Sixteen, Part B of Aaron's Rod by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen, Florence, Part B. Yes, very true. You are. You are in need of enlightenment. <laughs> That's good. That, benighted wise virgins. What? Argyle put his red face near to Aaron's and made a moo narrowing his eyes quizzically as he peered up from under his level grey eyebrows. Sit in the dark to save the lamp-oil, and all no good to them. When the bridegroom cometh, ha, <laughs> ha, good that, good, my boy. The bridegroom, he giggled to himself, what about the bridegroom, Algy, my boy, eh? What about him? Better trim your wick, old man, if it's not too late. "'We were talking of souls, not wicks, Argyle,' said Elgy. "'Same thing. Upon my soul, it all amounts to the same thing. Where's the soul in a man that hasn't got a bedfellow, eh? Answer me that. Can't be done, you know. Might as well ask a virgin chicken to lay you an egg.' "'Then there ought to be a good deal of it about,' said Elgy. "'Of what? Of soul? There ought to be a good deal of soul about?' Ah, because there's a good deal of—you mean—ah, I wish it were so. I wish it were so. But believe me, there's far more damned chastity in the world than anything else, even in this town. Call it chastity if you like. I see nothing in it but sterility. It takes a rat to praise long tales. Impotence set up the praise of chastity. Believe me or not. But that's the bottom of it. The virtue is made out of the necessity. Ha, <laughs> ha, Like them. Like them. Ha, <laughs> ha. Saving their souls. Why, they'd save the waste matter of their bodies, if they could. Grieves them to part with it. <laughs> there was a pause. Argyle was in his cups, which left no more to be said. Algy, quivering and angry, looked disconcertingly round the room as if he were quite calm and collected. The deaf Jewish Rosen was smiling down his nose and saying, "'What was that last? I didn't catch that last,' cupping his ear with his hand in the frantic hope that someone would answer. No one paid any heed. "'I shall be going,' said Algy, looking around. And then to Aaron he said, "'You play the flute, I hear. May we hear you sometime?' "'Yes,' said Aaron, noncommittal. "'Well, look here. Come to tea to-morrow. I shall have some friends, and—' del torre will play the piano come to tea to-morrow will you thank you i will and perhaps you'll bring your flute along don't you do any such thing my boy make them entertain you for once they're always squeezing an entertainment out of somebody and argyle desperately emptied the remains of algy's wine into his own glass whilst algy stood as if listening to something far off and blinking terribly "'Anyhow,' he said at length, "'you'll come, won't you? "'And bring the flute, if you feel like it.' "'Don't you take that flute, my boy,' persisted Argyle. "'Don't think of such a thing. "'If they want a concert, let them buy their tickets "'and go to the Teatro Diana, "'or to Marchesa del Torre's Saturday morning. "'She can afford to treat them.' "'Algy looked at Argyle and blinked. "'Well,' he said, "'I hope you'll get home all right, Argyle.' "'Thank you for your courtesy, Algy. "'Won't you lend me your arm?' As Algy was small and frail, somewhat shaky, and as Argyle was a finely built heavy man of fifty or more, the slap was unkind. 
Afraid I can't, tonight. Good night. Algy departed. So did little me, who had sat with a little delighted disapproval on his tiny bird-like face, without saying anything. And even the Jew Rosen put away his deaf machine and began awkwardly to take his leave. His long nose was smiling to itself complacently at all the things Argyle had been saying. When he too had gone, Argyle arched his brows at Aaron, saying, "'Oh, my dear fellow, what a lot they are! Little me looking like an innocent little boy. He's over seventy, if he's a day, well over seventy. Well, you don't believe me. Ask his mother. Ask his mother. She's ninety-five. Old lady of ninety-five. Argyle even laughed himself at his own preposterousness. And then Algy. Algy's not a fool, you know. Oh, he can be most entertaining, most witty, and amusing, but he's out of place here. He should be in Kensington, dandling around the ladies' drawing-rooms, and making his mots. They're rich, you know, the pair of them. Little me used to boast that he lived on eleven and three pence a week. Had to, poor chap. But then what does a white mouse like that need? Makes a heavy meal on cheese-paring. Luck, you know. But of course he's come into money as well. Rich as Croesus, and still lives on nineteen and two pence a week. Though it's nearly double, of course, what it used to be. No wonder he looks anxious. They disapprove of me. Oh, quite right, quite right from their own point of view. Where would their money be otherwise? It wouldn't last long if I laid hands on it. He made a devilish quizzing face. But you know, they get on my nerves. Little old maids, you know, little old maids. I'm sure I'm surprised at their patience with me. But when people are patient with you, you want to spit gall at them, don't you? <laughs> Poor old Algy. Did I lay it on him tonight, or did I miss him? I think you got him, said Aaron. He'll never forgive me. Depend on it, he'll never forgive me. <laughs> I like to be unforgiven. It adds zest to one's intercourse with people to know that they'll never forgive one. <laughs> Little old maids who do their knitting with their tongues. Poor old Algy. He drops his stitches now. Ha! <laughs> Must be eighty, I should say. Aaron laughed. He had never met a man like Argyle before, and he could not help being charmed. The other man had a certain wicked whimsicality that was very attractive when levelled against someone else and not against one's self. He must have been very handsome in his day, with his natural dignity, and his clean-shaven, strong, square face, but now his face was all red and softened and inflamed. His eyes had gone small and wicked under his bushy grey brows. Still he had a presence, and his grey hair, almost gone white, was still handsome. "'And what are you going to do in Florence?' asked Argyle. Aaron explained. "'Well,' said Argyle, "'make what you can out of them, and then go. Go before they have time to do the dirty on you. If they think you want anything from them, they'll treat you like a dog. Like a dog. Oh, they're very frightened of anybody who wants anything of them. Frightened to death. I see nothing of them. Live by myself. See nobody. Can't stand it, you know.' Their silly little tea-parties simply can't stand it. No, I live alone, and shall die alone. At least I sincerely hope so. I should be sorry to have any of them hanging around. The restaurant was empty. The pale, malarial waiter—he had, of course, contracted malaria during the war—was looking purple round the eyes, but Argyle callously sat on. Aaron, therefore, rose to his feet. 
"'Oh, I'm coming, I'm coming,' said Argyle. He got unsteadily to his feet. The waiter helped him on with his coat, and he put a disreputable-looking little curly hat on his head. And then he took his stick. "'Don't look at my appearance, my dear fellow,' said Argyle. "'I am frayed at the wrists. Look here.' He showed the cuffs of his overcoat just frayed through. "'I've got a trunkful of clothes in London, if only somebody would bring it to me.' "'Ready, then. Avanti.' And so they passed out into the still rainy street. Argyle lived in the very centre of the town, in the cathedral square. Aaron left him at his hotel door. "'But come and see me,' said Argyle. "'Call for me at twelve o'clock, or just before twelve, and let us have luncheon together. What? Is that all right? Yes, come just before twelve. When? Tomorrow? Tomorrow morning? Will you come tomorrow?' Aaron said he would on Monday. "'Monday, eh? You say Monday. Very well, then. Don't you forget now. Don't you forget, for I've a memory like a vice. I shan't forget. Just before twelve, then, and come right up. I'm right under the roof. In paradise, as the porter always says, siamo nel paradiso. But he's a cretin, as near paradise as I care for, for it's devilish hot in summer and damned cold in winter.' Don't you forget now, Monday, twelve o'clock." And Argyle pinched Aaron's arm fast, then went unsteadily up the steps to his hotel door. The next day at Algy's there was a crowd. Algy had a very pleasant flat, indeed, kept more scrupulously neat and finicking than ever any woman's flat was kept. So to-day, with its bowls of flowers and its pictures and books and old furniture, and Algy very nicely dressed, fluttering and blinking and making really a charming host, it was all very delightful to the little mob of visitors. They were a curious lot, it is true, everybody rather exceptional, which, though it may be startling, is so very much better fun than everybody all alike. Aaron talked to an old, old Italian elegant in side curls, who peeled off his grey gloves and studied his formalities with a delightful mid-Victorian dash, and told stories about a plaint which Lady Surrey had against Lord Marsh and was quite incomprehensible, outrolled the English words like plums out of a burst bag, and all completely unintelligible. But the old beau was supremely satisfied. He loved talking English, and holding his listeners spellbound. Next to Aaron on the sofa sat the Marchesa del Torre, an American woman from the southern states who had lived most of her life in Europe. She was about forty years of age, handsome, well-dressed, and quiet in the buzz of the tea-party. It was evident she was one of Algy's lionesses. Now she sat by Aaron, eating nothing, but taking a cup of tea and keeping still. She seemed sad, or not well, perhaps. Her eyes were heavy, but she was very carefully made up and very well dressed, though simply, and sitting there, full-bosomed, rather sad, remote-seeming, she suggested to Aaron a modern Cleopatra brooding, Anthony-less. Her husband, the Marchese, was a little intense Italian in a colonel's grey uniform, cavalry, leathery gaiters. He had blue eyes, his hair was cut very short, his head looked hard and rather military. He would have been taken for an Austrian officer or even a German, had it not been for the peculiar Italian sprightliness and touch of grimace in his mobile countenance. He was rather like a gnome, not ugly, but odd. Now he came and stood opposite to Signor Delanti, 
and quizzed him in Italian. But it was evident, in quizzing the old buck, the little Marchese was hovering near his wife, in earshot. Algy came up with cigarettes, and she at once began to smoke, with that peculiar, heavy intensity of a nervous woman. Aaron did not say anything, did not know what to say. He was peculiarly conscious of the woman sitting next to him, her arm near his. She smoked heavily, in silence, as if abstracted, a sort of cloud on her level, dark brows. Her hair was dark, but a softish brown, not black, and her skin was fair. Her bosom would be white. Why Aaron should have had this thought he could not for the life of him say. Manfredi, her husband, rolled his blue eyes and grimaced as he laughed at old Lanty, but it was obvious that his attention was diverted sideways towards his wife. Aaron, who was tired of nursing a teacup, placed it on a table and resumed his seat in silence. But suddenly the little Marchese whipped out his cigarette case and, making a little bow, presented it to Aaron, saying, "'Won't you smoke?' "'Thank you,' said Aaron. "'Turkish that side, Virginia there, you see. "'Thank you. Turkish,' said Aaron. The little officer in his dove-gray and yellow uniform snapped his box shut again and presented a light. "'You are new in Florence?' he said as he presented the match. Four days,' said Aaron. "'And I hear you are musical. I play the flute. No more.' "'Ah, yes, but then you play it as an artist, not as an accomplishment.' "'But how do you know?' laughed Aaron. "'I was told so, and I believe it. "'That's nice of you, anyhow. "'But you are a musician, too.' "'Yes, we are both musicians, my wife and I.' Manfredi looked at his wife. She flicked the ash off her cigarette. "'What sort?' said Aaron. "'Why, how do you mean, what sort? "'We are dilettanti, I suppose. "'No, what is your instrument? "'The piano?' "'Yes, the pianoforte.' and my wife sings, but we are very much out of practice. I have been at the war four years, and we have had our home in Paris. My wife was in Paris. She did not wish to stay in Italy alone. And so, you see, everything goes. But you will begin again? Yes, we have begun already. We have music on Saturday mornings. Next Saturday a string quartet, and violin solos by a young Florentine woman, a friend. Very good indeed, daughter of our Professor Tortoli, who composes, as you may know. Yes, said Aaron. Would you care to come and hear? Awfully nice if you would, suddenly said the wife, quite simply, as if she had merely been tired and not talking before. I should like to very much. Do come, then. While they were making the arrangements, Algy came up in his blandest manner. Now, Marchesa, might we hope for a song? "'No, I don't sing any more,' came the slow contralto reply. "'Oh, but you can't mean you say that deliberately. "'Yes, quite deliberately.' She threw away her cigarette and opened her little gold case to take another. "'But what can have brought you to such a disastrous decision?' "'I can't say,' she replied with a little laugh. "'The war, probably.' "'Oh, but don't let the war deprive us of this as of everything else.' "'Can't be helped,' she said. "'I have no choice in the matter. "'The bird has flown.' She spoke with a certain heavy languor. "'You mean the bird of your voice? Oh, but that is quite impossible. One can hear it calling out of the leaves every time you speak. I'm afraid you can't get him to do any more than call out of the leaves. But—but pardon me. Is it because you don't intend there should be any more song? Is that your intention?' 
"'That I couldn't say,' said the Marchesa, smoking, smoking. "'Yes,' said Manfredi. "'At the present time it is because she will not, not because she cannot. It is her will, as you say.' "'Dear me, dear me,' said Algy. "'But this is really another disaster added to the war list. But, but, will none of us ever be able to persuade you?' He smiled half cajoling, half pathetic, with a prodigious flapping of his eyes. "'I don't know.' said she that will be as it must be then can't we say it must be song once more to this sally she merely laughed and pressed out her half-smoked cigarette how very disappointing how very cruel of of fate and the war and and all the sum total of evils said algy perhaps here the little and piquant host turned to aaron perhaps mistresses in your flute might call out the bird of song as thrushes call each other into challenge, you know. Don't you think that is very probable? I have no idea, said Aaron. But you, Marchesa, won't you give us hope that it might be so? I've no idea either, she said. But I should very much like to hear Mr. Sisson's flute. It's an instrument I like extremely. There, now. You see you may work the miracle, Mr. Sisson. Won't you play to us? "'I'm afraid I didn't bring my flute along,' said Aaron. "'I didn't want to arrive with a little bag.' "'Quite,' said Algy. "'What a pity it wouldn't go in your pocket.' "'Not music and all,' said Aaron. "'Dear me! What a comble of disappointment! I never felt so strongly, Marchesa, that the old life and the old world had collapsed. Really, I shall soon have to try to give up being cheerful at all.' "'Don't do that,' said the Marchesa. "'It isn't worth the effort.' "'Ah, I'm glad you find it so.' then I have hope. She merely smiled, indifferent. The tea-party began to break up. Aaron found himself going down the stairs with the Marchesa and her husband. They descended all three in silence, husband and wife in front. Once outside the door, the husband asked, "'How shall we go home, dear? Tram or carriage?' It was evident he was economical. "'Walk,' she said, glancing over her shoulder at Aaron. "'We are all going the same way, I believe.' Aaron said where he lived. They were just across the river, and so all three proceeded to walk through the town. "'You are sure it won't be too much for you, too far?' said the little officer, taking his wife's arm solicitously. She was taller than he, but he was a spirited fellow. "'No, I feel like walking, so long as you don't have to pay for it afterwards.' Aaron gathered that she was not well, yet she did not look ill, unless it were nerves. She had that peculiar heavy remote quality of preoccupation and neurosis. The streets of Florence were very full this Sunday evening, almost impassable, crowded particularly with gangs of grey-green soldiers. The three made their way brokenly, and with difficulty. The Italian was in a constant state of returning salutes. The grey-green, sturdy, unsoldierly soldiers looked at the woman as she passed. "'I am sure you had better take a carriage,' said Manfredi. "'No, I don't mind it. Do you feel at home in Florence?' Aaron asked her. "'Yes, as much as anywhere. Oh, yes, quite at home.' "'Do you like it as well as anywhere?' he asked. "'Yes, for a time. Paris, for the most part.' "'Never America?' "'No, never America. I came when I was quite a little girl to Europe. Madrid, Constantinople, Paris. I hardly knew America at all.' Aaron remembered that Francis had told him the Marchese's father had been ambassador to Paris. "'So you feel you have no country of your own?' "'I have Italy. I am Italian now, you know.' 
Aaron wondered why she spoke so muted, so numbed. Manfredi seemed really attached to her, and she to him. They were so simple with one another. They came towards the bridge where they should part. "'Won't you come and have a cocktail?' she said. "'Now?' said Aaron. "'Yes, this is the right time for a cocktail. What time is it, Manfredi?' "'Half-past six. Do come and have one with us,' said the Italian. "'We always take one about this time.' Aaron continued with them over the bridge. They had the first floor of an old palazzo opposite a little way up the hill. A man-servant opened the door. "'If only it will be warm,' she said. "'The apartment is almost impossible to keep warm. We will sit in the little room.' Aaron found himself in a quite worn room with shaded lights and a mixture of old Italian stiffness and deep, soft, modern comfort. The Marchesa went away to take off her wraps, and the Marchese chatted with Aaron. The little officer was amiable and kind, and it was evident he liked his guest. End of chapter 16, part B